Hello and welcome. I'm Will. I'm Alicia, and this is Enter the Rabbit Hole. Each week, we dive into and dissect the weird, the momentous, and the downright interesting. Today, it's cannibalism part two. Thus, we have returned for the the main act. Yeah, you know, cannibalism the main two. Course. The electric boogaloo. Yeah, because we know that you want to hear by animal cannibalism. We know that that's interesting. Otherwise, we wouldn't have sat and talked about it for 50-odd minutes. However, we know what you really want to hear about is people eating people. Mm, Nom, 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 nom. Anyway, so uh, if you hadn't already had your lunch, maybe pause the podcast. um, Or, you know... It's the new diet. Yeah, have it on in the background. I don't know, whatever you like. Um, if you're not worried about crossing any wires, then yeah, go for it. I'm not trying to tell you how to live your life. Uh, okay, so at least you want to get us started on human cannibalism. Okay, so did you know that the average human body contains about 125,000 calories? I did not. I was actually really shocked when I heard that statistic. Um, and it sounds like a lot, right? You're thinking yeah. in terms of, like, bags of chips. Like, that's a lot of calories. Well, uh, the the average intake, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the because the governmental guidelines always go back and forth in this kind of thing, but I think for men, it's somewhere between 2,000 and 2,400 calories per day, and for women, it's something like uh, 18,000 to 2,000, yeah, maybe. Yeah, so, that's Yeah, that's a lot. That's a big number. But in terms of other food sources, it's quite low. So, for mm-hmm. example, a primitive cow, not not even like a modern day meat cow, a primitive prehistoric cow would provide about 367,000 calories in muscle alone. So in humans, we're taking into account organs every little tiny bit, but... For the cows, we're only looking at the muscle. Yeah, and that's because they haven't been, like, fed on uh, nothing but grass and sake and Japanese beer and then massaged on, on like, an hourly basis. Mm, that's a dream. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I would love to be just fed sake by a, a group of Japanese men with knives in their hand who are just, like, giving me massages that is the dream. Uh, okay, so uh, you wanted to talk a little bit about some of the, I guess, the connotations between the ideas of cannibalism, cannibalism in other cultures? So we talked a little bit in the beginning of last episode about uh, how the word cannibalism came into being. And it was through a kind of racist lens. Mm-hmm. You know, we are, some of our ancestors uh, used cannibalism as a uh, a means to enslave and murder people. Mm-hmm. And in that way, we can see, like, a lot of historians have not actually seen acts of cannibalism and just seen ancient peoples and decided, well, they're primitive and mm-hmm. therefore must be cannibals. I mean, you can see this even today, right? When uh, the the news of the COVID-19 outbreak first came out, it wasn't long before people were pointing to the wet markets. So not just any old market in China, but specifically wet markets, which were selling uh, wild animals and, and bush meat. 
people were pointing that to that and saying, oh yeah, of course. Well, that's what they do, isn't it? Yeah, no, no, I know they eat bats. I know they eat pangolins. Oh God, it's just like Johnny Foreigner at it again. And now we're all sick. Well, thanks China. Like many people were very overly eager to jump on that bandwagon. Sure. And it, it's a very much, it's an us versus them position, mm-hmm. right? It's we, we, of course, would never, God-fearing Christians that we are, would never eat another human being. No. Spoiler alert. They ate a lot of humans. Yeah, would you like some more of this um, highly processed KFC chicken I've got right here? Uh, KFC are not sponsoring us today. Uh, I, don't, I don't think they are. Not anymore. So, um, a lot of instances uh, of recorded cannibalism have been disproven based on the bias of those historians. A lot of research has to be redone because and, and questioned as to whether these are true accounts of, of cannibalism and a true customary ritual in, in a group or, or whether it's just the account of someone who sees a bunch of brown people and is like, eh, probably cannibals. In the case of Christopher Columbus, actually someone on his crew who never set foot on the land itself, never never left the boat, essentially, wrote accounts of huts full of people's limbs and cauldrons full of bones, etc. So again, you, you alluded to that old tiny game of telephone that we were talking about last time and and this is just perpetuating that like it's just that game of what i heard well what i heard was you would not believe Uh uh-huh and then just kind of giving it your own spin as you go along sure and this is pretty common in all acts of like conquest in order to to lessen the people that they are conquering they will often call them cannibals for example the aztecs were accused of cannibalism when there really is no proof that they engaged in acts of cannibalism they did engage in acts of human sacrifice Mm -hmm. but whether or not they ate humans hasn't been proven and you can fast forward to today where you can make the argument for going and messing around in places like Iraq and Afghanistan because, oh, just look at the way they treat their women and, oh, look at their, uh, look at how they run a, a theocratic society so badly. I'm sure we can do it better. Let, let's just go in there and we'll show them how to do it. So it's important that when we look at anything like this, we're looking also through a, a xenophobic lens and understanding that some information is not wholly accurate. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we're going to try and break down the different reasons why people have engaged in cannibalism in the past uh, and maybe to this day. Sure. So um, some of the most titillating cannibalism is, of course, uh, like sexual or pathological cannibalism. Yeah. Don't you worry. We, we're going to be getting to that. Okay. Just hold all your horses because it's coming. There's also, of course, survival cannibalism. Mm -hmm. There's medical cannibalism and also customary or ritual cannibalism. Mm -hmm. And and finally, we'll talk a little bit about cannibalism in folklore. So should we start off with uh, everybody's favorite? Let's just get out of the way. Sexual and pathological cannibalism. Mm -mm -mm. Now, Alicia, if I were to say to you the words cannibal killer, first image that would probably pop into your head, uh, I, I could probably guess. 
You might be thinking of Hannibal Lecter. Mm. You might be thinking of Ed Gein. Chances are, if I say the words cannibal killer, the first man to pop into your head would be one Jeffrey Dahmer. So a few things have earned Dahmer his place in the Serial Killer Hall of Fame. For many people listening today, the chances are that you remember seeing his arrest and trial as it happened. I think he went to trial in 1993, uh, and the bulk of his murders happened in, in the late 80s and early 90s. You may be able to reel off his considerable body count, 17 men and boys, or his equally considerable period of activity, so 13 years by the time of his arrest. You may even have heard of some of his gruesome experiments on his victims, drilling holes into their skulls and partially lobotomizing them or injecting chemicals into their brains to try and create a form of zombie companion. But, for good or for ill, the thing that makes Dahmer's image so indelible are the contents of his fridge freezer. Dahmer is perhaps the perfect example of a product killer. So for those who uh, aren't true crime aficionados like Alicia and I, basically uh, most serial killers can be divided into two categories, product and process. So a process killer gets his kicks out of the act of killing. You said his. Or her, sorry. I'm going to try and scrape by that, but okay. That was sexist of me. Yeah, the vast majority of serial killers are men, but... Let's not gatekeep here. Okay. Uh, they get their satisfaction. Thank you. Um, from the process of killing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they like whether whether whatever their method is, strangulation mm-hmm. or stabbing. That's what gets them off. But a product killer doesn't really care for the act of killing itself. They simply want what they get after the killing, which is usually the body. Yeah, they want the body. So that pretty much describes Dahmer to a T. Both his methods and his testimonials indicate that he took no real pleasure in the murder itself. He would try to render himself blackout drunk in order to kill his victims, and would also ply them with a mixture of drugs and alcohol to make them more pliable. Perhaps this was even a perverse final act of kindness on his part. The important thing here is that the body itself, not the murder, that was the goal. So once he had killed his victims, Dammer was reported to masturbate over and have sex with the corpses, take Polaroids of them, dismember them, and keep some of the parts. Apparently skulls, in particular, were his favourite for trophies. And somewhere in the course of his 17 murders, he decided to try eating their hearts, thighs, and organs. Mm, the best parts. Yeah, I mean, he the guy knows his meats, I'm, I'm gonna say that much. So beyond this compulsion to kill, what can we make of this behaviour? Both Dahmer and his family have talked about his odd behaviour from childhood, describing a kind of black hole where a normal personality should be. Was his cannibalism an extension of his desire to have another human being with him forever? Someone would never leave him? Or could it be that when you've worked your way through every other taboo and explored every other unthinkable act you can commit upon another individual, down to pulverizing their bones with a sledgehammer and disposing them in acid, that eating them is just the next logical step. What do you think? I think in terms of Dahmer, he didn't set out to be a cannibal. It wasn't his ultimate goal, Mm -hmm. right? He was a lonely man and he felt like everybody was going to leave him no matter what he did. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is why his first attempts were to try and make basically a sex zombie. I think you're right towards the end that it is an escalation. 
he is trying to create uh, a companion that isn't going to leave him. And this kind of escalates and escalates. And, well, I've tried everything else. Why not cannibalism? So yeah. maybe a combination. I, I think I would tend to fall into that uh, camp as well. I think one thing that you see with serial killers in general is this ramping up. So they go through a period of experimentation early in their serial killing career when they figure out what it is that they like. It's like any kind of other kind of addictive habit. It becomes more and more, but with a, a law of diminishing returns. So in addition to killing more often, uh, killing in more violent ways, or experimenting with your victim profile, what have you, I think, yeah, he, and I don't think he's alone in this at all. I think uh, the next step is then, what else can I do with this body? Why don't I try eating it? By the way, if you want to hear some uh, fantastic coverage of the Jeffrey Dahmer story from start to finish, I, I can't recommend uh, one of my favorite podcasts, the last podcast on the left, uh, highly enough. They, they do a really good breakdown of his entire story. Really good. And, and lots of other true crime as well. Mm-hmm. But... Dahmer may not be the most well-known cannibal. In 2001, if you logged onto the now defunct website Cannibal Cafe, you might have seen a message in German that said, well-built man, 18 to 30, who would like to be eaten by me. Can I just put it out there that if we do ever start a band, Cannibal Cafe, definitely, I want it to be on the short list of the, the names that we choose. Oh, it's great. It's a yeah. great name. It's a shame. It's at least the name of our first album. What what kind of music? Mm, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. So Armin Muse was a German man who gained infamy for cutting off the penis of, and I'm going to butcher this name, uh, Bernd... <laughs> Pun intended? No. No. Un completely unintentional. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Oh, oh no. I don't know if I can. Um, Bernd Jürgen Armando Brandes. Mm. He then tried to eat the penis, and after allowing Brandes to almost succumb to blood loss, stabbed him in the throat and butchered him. Mm -hmm. So it's important to note that Muse did not take Brands. Brands was a willing victim. Several other people had replied to this advert, but Brands was the only one who was willing to go through with it. He wanted to be eaten. So what happened was Brands came to Muse's house I believe they may have engaged in coitus. They then gave Brand 20 sleeping pills and some cough syrup so that he was in kind of a, a fugue state. Mm -hmm. Brands initially wanted Muse to bite off his penis, but uh, it proved too difficult. So Muse cut off his Brand's penis, uh, tried to feed some of it to Brands, but it was too chewy. He... Let's be honest, it's not the part of the animal that you would normally go for, is it? No, and it is full of, like, erectile tissue, so it's it's not, like, a, a big, juicy steak. I, I know there are men out there who uh, will mistakenly refer to it as a muscle, uh, their love muscle. They'll maybe talk about how oh. they can they can train it. Maybe they're doing some cock push-ups, but all of that is just a, a falsehood. Uh, it is just rubbery, rubbery tissue that's designed to be full of blood in order to get uh, erect. 
Yeah, and in fact, uh, Muse didn't even eat it in the end. He he tried to cook it, but ended up burning it. And then, in what might be animal cruelty, he fed the burnt penis to his dog. Um, maybe that was a treat. Maybe, what, maybe like penis poppers or something. I don't know. Like like the tub of dentist sticks that you keep on top of the or like the bacon bits that you keep on top of the cupboard so the dog can't get to it and now your dog's got a taste for penis yeah that's where do you go that's from the there true horror here yeah your dog's got a taste for man is that you've given your dog that first taste and he will he'll never eat anything that good again so that's the real crime here so uh after cutting off brand's penis Muse ran a bath for Brands and went and read a Star Trek novel. And that detail comes up time and time yeah, again. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure why, if it's like, oh, those those Trekkies, cannibals, a lot of them. And you'll never believe what he read while his willing victim bled out. A Star Trek novel. It's just that fixation on that one detail. I'm not sure why. I think it's just like, well, it's interesting. Mm. You know, what, what? What do you read while someone's bleeding to death in the other room? Also, which generation of Star Trek? Was he, like, a first-generation guy? Is this the next generation? Are we talking Deep Space Nine? I think he's a next-generationer. Yeah, makes sense. Um, After allowing Bran to bleed out in the bath quite a bit, uh, he didn't let him succumb to blood loss fully. He then, like I mentioned earlier, stabbed him in the throat with a knife. After he was dead and and before he stabbed him supposedly he he said a little prayer um so is is that nice is that nice is is that is that nice he probably thought it was the nice thing to do probably yeah so he then put the body on a butcher's hook he dismembered brand's body put it in a freezer and then consumed it over a period of 10 months so there is a belief that Muse had a desire to consume a person so that he would no longer be lonely. But this didn't turn out to be the desired result because only a couple months later, after he finished Brands, he uh, posted another advert for another victim. Yeah, and this is what got him caught, wasn't it? Mm. He, he didn't originally get caught for Brands' murder. This was... If he had just kept his head down, then... Yeah. That's the moral here. Eat one person, keep your head down. Yeah. I think this is probably what identifies Muse as a potential serial killer as well, is this need to go back to that uh, original behavior and engage in it again. A one-time thing just isn't going to cut it for him. Pun intended, I'm going to say. But I guess the, the question here is... Well, there are two questions for me. The first one is less important to this particular podcast, and... It is, is it murder if the victim victim is willing? Um, I... And see, here I think state of mind is very important because just in the way I am a firm believer in uh, euthanasia, um, but only if a person has gone through therapy and is their state of mind has been checked. Yeah. Brands may have wanted to be eaten, but... Nobody can really verify that. Nobody can verify where he was at mentally. I think the thing that it reminds me of are accounts that I've heard of people who have tried to commit suicide but lived. And they've talked about how in the moment, even though they were very sure that they wanted to take their own life, the minute that they 
jumped from a high ledge or the minute that they took a bunch of sleeping pills or, or whatever it might be, there's this, oh shit, type moment where they realize what they've done and they've, re they've realized that, you know, they're about to die and they're about to have thrown everything away. And so you can be so sure of something that you want up until the moment that you are about to get it. And I wonder if that's maybe what went through Brant's mind as he was bleeding out in Muse's bathtub. So that's the, that's the rub, isn't it? He asked to be murdered and to be consumed, but how can you be sure that that's what he wanted the entire time? And also, let's be honest, if... We don't know the conversations that took place at the end. All we have is is Muse testimony on this. So for all we know, that's not true. We do have a videotape. Oh, my mistake. My apologies. But the videotape doesn't catalog the entire the entire uh, procedure, the entire event. Yeah, the entire event. So how do we know that at the end, Brands wasn't in the bathtub and he was like, "Please call the ambulance." And Muse is like, "I can't hear you. I'm on chapter twenty nine. Oh, it's really interesting. Oh, Worf, what did you do next? So yeah, how how can we be sure? Because Muse isn't then going to presumably is not going to be like, "Oh, my bad. Let me call the ambulance and I'll tell them that you're bleeding out because I cut off your penis, but you asked me to." So yeah, I I mean. I don't know. I, I would say, hypothetically speaking, no, something like euthanasia isn't murder if you are 100% cognizant of what it is that you really want uh, up until up until that very moment, if you're okay with that. And under those circumstances, you've presumably had time to, to make peace with, you know, the, the reality of the situation. Also, it's uh, most likely a terminal illness. So. Yeah, something something that you know isn't going to go away. Whereas brands, potentially, this is something that that therapy could have helped with. Potentially, this is something that uh, an another tweak to a different part of his life could could have alleviated him from. So I guess we'll we'll never know. Yeah, I I do think that in terms of Muse versus Dahmer, Muse has shown so several other people replied to this ad but mm -hmm. backed out. And Muse never forced anybody to to do this act, right? And I, yeah. I think that's a significant difference between him and Donner was that he wanted a willing victim. He wanted... And, and maybe he preyed on um, on Brand's need for another human being. I, I know that we're going down a bit of a, a conversational corridor here. However, I think one of the differences as well... I mean, there's a multitude of differences between these two individuals. I think one of them is that Muse, his story takes place after the the uh, advent of uh, widespread internet access. Mm. Or this was the beginning of the time when a lot of people were getting online, a lot of people were entering chat rooms and forums. So you have that digital, uh, digital uh, play area, that free space, where you can share ideas and experiment with ideas like, oh, maybe I'm into cannibalism. Maybe I want to talk to other people like yeah. about that. A place where there is literally uh, an available website called the Cannibal Cafe for a person with cannibal fetishes. That wouldn't have been available in Dahmer's time. Yeah, whereas Dahmer was uh, spending a lot of his time in uh, gay bars and gay nightclubs uh, and, and kind of cruising, if you like, for victims so he's in that physical environment already where 
the the safety latches are already disengaged. One of the differences between these two. For me, I think another difference is that Muse is a bit more like kind of customary cannibalism,、mm-hmm. um, which we'll talk a little bit about later. But basically, Dahmer kind of wants to assert dominance over over、uh, his victims. His victims, whereas Muse, to me, seems like he wants to consume Brian's essence. Yeah, you know the other name that came up while we were doing this research was Dennis Nielsen. Again, if you haven't listened to it, the last podcast do a great series on、uh, British serial killer Dennis Nielsen. And Dennis Nielsen, similar to Dahmer, another product killer who really just wanted the bodies of men to have in his house to to have a companion who would be completely compliant, who wouldn't leave him, and then had the You know the unfortunate side effect of a bunch of rotting bodies in his house and having to move、Under、house a couple of、boards. times, yeah, and just in cupboards and in you know various different items of furniture,、uh, got a little bit stinky after a while. But it it reminds me of that that kind of you know some could see it as a form of domination, i.e., I have so much power over your body that I'm going to kill you and I'm I'm just going to use your body however I should choose. I guess there's an element as well of just that complete inability to form a healthy relationship with another person unless you have full control of that other person.、Hmm. Yeah,、and、is that healthy? <laughs> I'm gonna say no. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna be brave and say no. So I do want to touch on the need for both Dahmer and Muse to consume another person because both of them were quite lonely men、mm-hmm. and. They felt like a way to fill this void in them was to literally consume someone to ease their loneliness.、Mm-hmm. And where where does that idea come from? Because to me, it sounds almost like a, a literary trope. Yeah, it does sound like something that would maybe come out of an Edgar Allan Poe story.、Uh, you know, but it's being so obsessed with somebody that you need to destroy. Their physical entity and turn them into、uh, an idea and an idea that lives inside of you. There is kind, of, yeah, there is kind of a, a, a gothic element there that I, I hadn't considered before. So we're gonna finish our our segment on sexual and patho- pathological cannibalism. We could obviously touch on a multitude of other people who have consumed or are reported to have consumed their victims, but we're just. Hitting a small segment before we move on to survival cannibalism. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we would love to be a true crime podcast, but we're never going to be able to punch with the big boys. And to be honest, a lot of this has already been covered by other podcasts out there. We are here to talk about cannibalism. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about survival cannibalism. So what constitutes survival cannibalism? In order for something to be deemed Cannibalism only for survival. You have to be on the brink of starvation, consuming all or part of the human body in an attempt to survive.、Mm-hmm. So probably the most famous instance of survival cannibalism is the Donner Party. I guess in the same way that when you talk about pathological cannibalism, Dahmer is one of the first names that jumps into your mind. When you talk about survival cannibalism, the Donner Party is probably one of the first names that come up. Although I will say it's a story that's probably more familiar with our North American listeners than it is with 
uh, necessarily people in the UK. The only things that I knew about the Donner Party before further research were, I guess, references that I'd seen made in movies or TV shows, etc., etc., from from the US. So, if you don't know, uh, the Donner Party is uh, a group of... It's a story about a group of eight, seven pioneers uh, in the 1840s, led partially by George Donner, hence the name. They were traveling from Missouri to California in order to set up a new life. They set off in the spring of 1846, and they were planning to cross the Sierra Nevadas and reach California by the end of that year. So for those who don't know, the Sierra Nevadas are a a fairly sizable mountain range which separates uh, that part of the country from California. However, after innumerable unfortunate decisions and mishaps, including choosing the shortcut that actually added 125 miles to their journey, the group ended up trapped in the Sierra Nevadas due to heavy snowfall. Rather than turn back, they tried to winter in the mountains during one of the coldest periods on record, and the surviving members of the party resorted to cannibalism and, in some reports, murder of their fellow pioneers. So I had heard of the Donner Party before because to, like I, I'm from Washington State and we learn a lot about like ye old West and you know the Oregon Trail and of course I played the Oregon Trail a lot growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never. So for those who don't know, what is the Oregon Trail? The game or the yeah. actual trail? <laughs> what? Uh, what is okay? Both. Uh, the game is um a. Uh, a 90s computer game it's a little bit earlier than that isn't it it's it's like old if you imagine like those old uh bbc or acorn computers with like the black screen with just like a bunch of green green pixely text over it like 8-bit pixels yeah but it's it also has some side scrolling elements at times it's it's just like a, a survival where you're on the Oregon trail and inevitably you die of dysentery or a broken limb or a shooting accident. I've, I've never once survived to the end of the Oregon Trail. I don't think anyone has completed the Oregon Trail. I think it's ve- in that aspect, it's very true to life. Bottom line, kind of hard to be a pioneer. Sure. The real Oregon Trail is, of course, the path that the covered wagons took from the eastern part of the country, usually starting in like Missouri, um, to... Oregon or California or Washington. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes these people were killed by a lack of supplies. They were engaging in conflicts with the native peoples or they were just ill-prepared to do things like cross the mountains. Ironically, the Donner Party were beset by uh, some of the native tribes in the area who were doing things like uh, stealing their cattle from them or they would shoot at them from the surrounding trees or the surrounding bushes. However, they actually enlisted the help of two native men who were trying to help guide them through the Sierra Nevadas. And ultimately, uh, Luis and Salvador, I think, are the, the names. Ultimately, they ended up uh, eating Luis and Salvador. In some reports, they murdered them and then ate them. Um, so... White people strike again. Just don't, yeah, don't, don't help white people, I guess, (laughs) ever, ever. If you see a white person, just run. So, 
for me, the question is, why does this story stick in our minds? Why is this the, the name that comes to mind when we think of survival cannibalism? Perhaps it's because this isn't a story about a group of burly sailors who had chosen to get aboard and sail across the ocean. This is a story about families, including women and children, who tried to make this incredible journey cross-country, all in an effort to try and find a better life. Perhaps when we look at the Dorner Party, it's all too easy to transpose ourselves, our families, our loved ones, into that snow-covered log shelter where they would make their life-or-death choices that would leave their mark on history. What do you think? I think it's quite terrifying to think of eating someone in general, to have to resort to that. But the idea that you would have to eat your own family members mm. in order to survive, and and especially if they did have to resort to murder of their family members. But in some cases, it's just that their family members have died of exposure. And now you have to decide, do I, do I succumb to exposure or do I eat my own father? There's also a bit of a, a horror movie element to it of young children feasting on human flesh. Once you get into the details of the story, unusually... So Bill Shoup mentions this in his book. A lot of the people who w would eventually succumb to exposure or, or otherwise perish in the Donner Party tended to be the single male teamsters. So these were... The men who were hired to, for example, wrangle the cattle, set up the wagons, uh, lead the trail. Otherwise, they were doing a lot of the heavy lifting. But they didn't themselves have family, uh, families who were members of the Donner Party. And so he was saying that it, it's an unusual statistic in these survival situations where it tends to be like families who have... Uh, more success at survival. The single men tend to be the ones who perish. However, in cases of sur survival in extreme sur uh, situations, it tends to be the very old and the very young that succumb first. And in the Donner Party, you see a lot of stories of the children uh, surviving, but only because they've resorted to cannibalism. And in some of the reports... Again, they covered this in the last podcast on the left fantastically. They talk about these children, I guess, they, they didn't seem as phased by it as the adults. Well, they're more elastic, right? They yeah. don't have that um, backlog of cultural taboo mm -hmm. to fight through. To them as well, it's not like the children are going to have to be the ones to butcher the body. The parents have to do that, right? So they are not as engaged in... In the act itself. Yeah, probably uh, the same way that a lot of people feel about eating meat. If they've never seen an animal on a farm, if their experience of eating meat doesn't go any further than getting some chicken nuggets out of a, a frozen food bag and then heating them up in the oven, you have more of a psychological disconnect, perhaps. I think you're absolutely right that they have that level of elasticity I think children tend to be a lot more resilient than we give them credit for. But then the implication again is, 
what does that do to you on a long-term basis? Like you have survived, but at what cost to your, your potential future self? So the other group that you might immediately think of if you're thinking of survival cannibalism is, of course, the Uruguayan rugby team, sometimes referred to as the miracle of the Andes. Now, again, if you're not familiar with the story uh, directly through the media, you, you might be aware of the 1993 movie Alive starring Ethan Hawke. Maybe that's how you became aware of this story in the first place. So on October 13th, 1972, Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 took off uh, with 45 people on board, including uh, the Uruguayan rugby team. They were flying over the Andes and thanks to uh, basically a plane that was inefficiently equipped to fly at those heights and they basically lost track of where they were. So when they were uh, reporting back to the radio tower, they gave them the wrong coordinates. So they ended up crash landing into the mountainside in the uh, in the Andes. They tore off both their the wings of the airplane and uh, crash landed in a valley somewhere near the Chilean border. Twelve people were killed immediately, uh, and the remaining survivors, many of them were injured as a result of the plane crash. Had you heard anything about this before? No, I remember it being uh, talked about in school when I was, like, maybe in middle school. But mm-hmm. again, like, when you're that age, it it's w- just one of the rumors, right? Like, oh, uh, a bunch of people got stranded in the mountains and they had to eat each other. And Marilyn Manson removed two of his own ribs so that he could perform autofellatio. Uh, yeah, I had heard that one uh, as well. Uh, so the the group who were left over after the crash, they had little in the way of food or supplies. Apparently, all they had on board were wine and chocolates, which delightful, but not great for an emergency situation. Uh, and the fuselage of the plane where they were sheltering didn't really provide sufficient conditions to keep them warm uh, at 11,500 feet. Weeks went past, during which time search and rescue attempts had been organized and then subsequently called off. They thought they had little chance of finding any survivors. So eventually the group resorted to cannibalizing the corpses of their fellow teammates and passengers. During this time, 12 more members of the group died. Eight of them were buried in an avalanche. So after after all of this had happened, uh, you know, they've had the initial crash. A bunch of people have died. They've resorted to cannibalism. To make matters worse, they are then hit by this massive avalanche and a bunch more people die. How terrible would it be that you have finally decided, all right, I'm going to survive this. I am going to have to resort to cannibalism mm-hmm. of my teammates or you know, the fellow passengers, and then you've loaded this onto your consciousness, you've engaged in the act, and then you are wiped out anyway by an avalanche. Yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? And if for the deeply religious amongst us, it probably makes matters worse. Because if you, and again, this is the question that we're going to keep coming back to in this show, if you think of cannibalism as being a taboo or a mortal sin, then you've done it, and then before you have chance to do any kind of recompense for this, 
you just get buried in a mountain of snow. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely awful. So, on December 22nd, the team were rescued. Once word that the survivors had resorted to cannibalism reached the international media, many obviously reacted with disgust. Some of the survivors said that when they ate the bodies of their dead compatriots, they envisioned Jesus Christ's words at the Last Supper, his blood and body being provided as a gift for all of mankind. Years later, however, these same survivors would admit that actually, this was some clever PR spin to help save them from public condemnation. You can kind of see it, right? Sure. I mean, if the only way to survive is to eat the corpses of your teammates and you get back and you're like, oh, finally, like, Dios mio, we survived. And then everybody's like, but at what cost? You know, you should have died on the mountains. Yeah. Of, of course, you're going to try and save yourself in any way that you can, you know, and in both ways, up in the mountains and when you're back down facing all these cameras. I think as well, it is a very clever move on their part if you are being condemned by a lot of your fellow countrymen, potentially because of their... Uh, because of their deeply held Catholic beliefs and them mistakenly thinking that it's somewhere rooted in their belief system that cannibalism is an out-and-out no-no, why wouldn't you then flip it on its head and say, uh, no, 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 actually, yeah, we, we were trying to do what Jesus was doing. We were thinking of Jesus the entire time. And also kind of being like, and also every time you go to church, you engage in cannibalism. Yeah. I also think it's a little bit like cheating on your partner and being like, no, baby, you don't understand. I was thinking of you the whole time. I was I was plowing into her, but I was putting your face over it. Yeah, I was, like, chowing into him, but I was thinking of Jesus the whole time. Wait, that doesn't make it better. Uh, no, not My at all. My name's not Jesus. It's Jesus. Anyway, so do we have some other examples of survival cannibalism? So this one might be more surprising to some people. In 1958, after the successful communist revolution in China, Mao started the Great Leap Forward. This was an attempt to increase production and to consolidate the power of the Communist Party. In an attempt to up crop yields, they stopped following genetic uh, practices in terms of, of farming practices and instead started following a Russian model so, like, a Russian model called, like, Svetlana or Iyanka. Yeah. She's been know. in a bunch of magazines. Yeah, and she developed this idea where, uh, obviously not her, developed an idea where grain and plants grow based on desire. And evolution happens based on the desire of a plant or an organism to change, which is obviously not the truth. No, it, it's... Science that has, so here we enter the realm of magical thinking. It's science that is acceptable as long as it is in line with a certain ideology. So it's very famous in, in Stalin's Russia. Stalin would purge thinkers who had ideas which did not conform with communist ide ideology. So you could look at this idea of genetics and say, well, the lazy plants who don't get with the program with the overall the overall agricultural system, those plants are culled because they are weak and the remaining plants are, are strong. Sure. Um, the issue here is uh, a lot of the the, the city folk were sent into the country in order to boost 
farmers' numbers. But of course, these people didn't know what, how to farm, and the farmers were being told that all they had to do was will the grain to grow. Yeah, it would have made a fantastic reality TV show because they obviously show up wearing like their designer jeans and like their fresh cut like uh, button down shirts and everything. And, and they're like, you know, which way to the Starbucks? And then, you know, you've got all the farmers who, you know, just uh, immediately like throw plows at them. Yeah. And in actuality, what it led to was a widespread famine. Yes. So there wasn't any war. There was no blight on the grain. No floods or drought, there was only Mao and the Great Leap Forward. What makes this story so brutal is that there's no reason for an upward of 30 million people to starve to death. It was the fault of the government and a consolation of power. Mao even said to distribute resources evenly will only ruin the Great Leap Forward. When there is not enough to eat, people starve to death. It's better to let half the people die so that others can eat their fill. Yeah, it's this notion that what are the lives of a few farmers uh, or a few intellectuals against the rise of communist China? This is the project that we are uh, embarking on. This is the thing that needs to happen. So if a few... 20 million people die along the way, it's, uh, you know, chump change. Yeah, it's not a big deal. Yeah, no biggie. And of course, this being communist China, a lot of people aren't aware of the famine today. They're not aware that it happened, and they're certainly not aware of the cannibalistic ramifications of the famine. While researching for a book called Tombstone, author Yang Jisheng said that he had, he had no idea, and this is a quote from him, I didn't think it would be so serious and so brutal and so bloody. I didn't know that there were thousands of cases of cannibalism. I didn't know about farmers who were beaten to death. People died in the family and they didn't bury the person because they could still collect their food rations. They kept the bodies in bed and covered them up and the corpses were eaten by mice. People ate corpses and fought for the bodies. In Gansu, they killed outsiders. People told me strangers passed through and they killed and ate them. And they ate their own children. Terrible too terrible. I think it is super important that people living in China nowadays get themselves onto a VPN and get access to information like this or like the events of Tiananmen Square or like even the events of the the past two years in in Hong Kong. That being said, uh, before I start wagging my finger too much, If you, like me, are a UK citizen, why don't you take a couple of minutes to Google search, oh, I don't know, what the British Empire did in India when they decided to build some railways. Or, um, uh, here's a fun little Google trip, Uh, why not look up uh, Britain first concentration camps? And and that will make you feel a little bit less good about yourself uh, just because you weren't born in another part of the world. Or if you're American, look into how Americans treated the Chinese or any other immigrant while building the railways, or how we treated Japanese people who were really Americans during World War II. Mm -hmm. So we're not trying to say that China is bad by any means. What we're trying to say is that these people had no choice, that they were the victims of an ideology that pushed them into starvation. 
when you hand the keys over to somebody who is going to act so incredibly recklessly and with such disregard for life, then bad things are going to happen. And, and eventually, if you've handed your your power, essentially, your independence over to a third party, then, you know, you're, you're no longer in the driver's seat. Something bad is going to happen. I think what makes this so sad to me is, one, these people had no choice. And from some reports that I can see, they traded their children with neighbors so that they wouldn't have to eat their own children to survive. Mm -hmm. So they would eat their neighbor's child instead. And this tragedy is gone completely under the radar. These people had to resort to thousands of instances of cannibalism, and we don't even recognize that. That is completely horrible. In an effort to make it light, I will now make a joke. Imagine if you're trying to trade your kid with your neighbors, and they're like, uh... Uh, no, no thanks, we don't want Jimmy. And then you're like, what What the fuck's wrong with my kid? What's wrong with Jimmy? Hey, look at him. Look at his legs. He's I need those legs. legs. I'm not going to because I'm his dad, but I want you to. Get, get over here. Look, I'm rubbing barbecue sauce on him right now. Mmm, yum, 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 yum. You don't want my kid. You know what? I don't want your kid. You're not invited to barbecue anymore. I do. I do still want your kid, though. I, I do want Please, to we are kid. starving to death. Uh, so... Let's uh, talk about another horrible period in history, because why not? What did you know about Jamestown and the Jamestown colonies? Um, I know that Jamestown was a, a group of colonists who came over and they had no idea uh, of, of how to farm, how to survive in early America. Yeah. And uh, that they enlisted the help of Native people, who they also uh, went back on promises to and subsequently massacred. Shocking. I know. Shocking. <laughs> Who would have thought that America did that? Uh, yeah, they, they tried to settle in super swampy areas, which were absolutely ridden with mosquitoes. And, I mean, think about it. it. It's like trying to go, in some senses, it's like trying to go to another planet and set up shop there. There's only so many things that you can plan for ahead of time. And so that's exactly what happened with the Jamestown colonists. So anyone who grew up in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, especially in the UK, will be very familiar with images of starving children in Ethiopia. One incident of mass starvation that might be less familiar was the one that faced the first settlers in Virginia's Jamestown colony. During the winter of 1609, the residents of Jamestown endured what is now referred to as the Starving Times, which would claim around 80% of the original inhabitants. If you are living through the Starving Times, nobody has ever uh, decreed that a certain period of time is known as the Starving Times because it was like a good time, you know? Sure, you're really getting in into those jeans, you're gonna make your summer bod. It's the starving times. Exactly, um, it's the starving times and I'm here to tell you about our new diet plan. It's so super easy, you just don't, you don't eat or maybe you eventually eat your shoes. Drought, conflict with neighboring tribes and a supply ship that showed up short of the necessary supplies that they would need in order to survive made life in the fledgling uh, colony incredibly difficult. And what was worse was that much of the food which had arrived on the first six ships were spoiled and rendered inedible. All of this culminated in a really desperate situation. There are many written accounts of the colonists resorting to eating cats, dogs, horses, and then eventually, each other. 
However, it's only recently that archaeologists have uncovered actual physical and visceral evidence to back up these reports. So up until now, we had some written reports which outlined the the cannibalism that took place during the starving times in Jamestown. But it's only very recently that we've found physical evidence to back up these assertions. Had you heard anything about uh, people eating each other in Jamestown? No, I think the only thing we're really taught in America is that the native people took pity on us and gave us the first Thanksgiving. Yeah, and so in order to celebrate that, you make little turkeys that are the shape of your hand. Yeah, and then we relegate people to terrible reservations. Yep. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone! Yay! Uh, So the settlers of Jamestown tried to find sustenance in a variety of unconventional sources in one action that seems to be repeated again and again in stories of extreme deprivation. They ate any leather that they could lay hands on. Boots, shoes, belts, etc. Have you... Heard of this in any stories of survival cannibalism before? I have heard of people trying to eat leather before and, like, soaking it so that they could get it down. I don't know how many calories are actually in a piece of leather and whether you can actually digest that. Yeah. Because also, I don't know if you know, the way people used to make leather to cure it is with urine. I did not know that. That's that's what tanning is. Tanning is using urine to to make leather. Oh god. I if anybody tells me that they're a leather tanner, I'm going to completely rethink the way that I I think of them. Um I don't think it's they do that anymore. Also, I don't hang out with a lot of leather tanners, so yeah, just leather daddies. So, George Percy, uh the settlement's acting leader, wrote And now famine, beginning to look ghastly and pale in every face, that nothing was spared to maintain life, and do those things which seem incredible, as to dig up dead corpse out of graves and eat them, and some have licked up the blood which hath fallen from their weak fellows. Pretty grim stuff. I mean, sounds great. It's a typical Sunday out. Mm. Nice picnic. Several accounts tell of one settler murdering his pregnant wife before salting her flesh for later consumption. He was eventually executed for murder. Again, it's really hard to sit in judgment of these people. There's there's a lot to unpack there. It's your wife, she is pregnant, then the, the salting of the flesh for later consumption? Maybe he just really didn't want to be a dad. He got way in over his head. He's like, I'm, uh, you know, I'm never going to get time to play like Madden and like, I'm not getting up at 3am for 3am feeds. I know what I'll do. Grabs butcher knife. Yeah, goes to town. But see, I think in contrast to like the Uruguayan uh, rugby team, that is possibly more acceptable to us because those people were already dead versus active murder for cannibalism. Yeah, and I think that is the other thing that we come up against here is the difference between digging up corpses, as as disgusting as that might sound to us, they are already dead, and in some sense they're not really fulfilling a purpose of any kind, versus murdering another human being who could have ended up as a fellow survivor. What physical evidence do we have of all this? Well, we do have Jane. Jane was a 14-year-old girl living in the Jamestown colony. Now, isotope and mineral studies tell us a lot about her. They tell us her age, as well as the fact that she was probably from the south of England. They can tell that from the type of uh, minerals found in the water that she was likely to have consumed while she was alive. 
they can also tell us that she was either born into or working for a well-off family. She seems to have been raised on a very nutritious diet. Her remains were found in what is thought to be a, a trash deposit scattered amongst the other refuse. The markings on her skeleton help us understand what she was doing there. Four closely spaced chop marks on her forehead indicate failed attempts to crack her skull open posthumously. And we can guess that this was posthumously because if she had still been alive, if this was the the mark of how she was murdered, then there would have been wider spaced, a lot more haphazard. But this indicates that she was lying still while they were trying to crack her head open. Uh, A crack in the back of her skull is thought to have been made by an axe or another weighted instrument. Many think the markings match those of cleavers that were also discovered at the site. There are many cuts, gouges, and saw marks on Jane's jaw, which indicate attempts to get to her tongue and throat tissue. Doug Owsley, head of physical anthropology for the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History, was asked to examine Jane's body and concluded... They were clearly interested in cheek meat, muscles of the face, tongue, and brain. Her hair was apparently left on her head. All of it, the the sawing of the jaw, the, the reports that they were trying to get to her cheek meat, I think it's the fact that they left her hair on her skull. That's the thing that, that sits with me. I think it's because, oh, I don't know, like if, if you died and I had no other food, and I had to eat your body, I'd probably make an effort to make you look as inhuman as Mm. possible. And I think seeing hair on somebody's head, it's one of the things that's like quintessentially human. I think it's the same reason why I wouldn't want to eat your eyeballs, as juicy as they look, now that I'm looking at you right now. Um, Um. You know, (laughs) edges closer. It's just, again, that separation between the meat that you need to consume and and the person that 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 person was in life so yeah the detail about the hair does kind of sit with me a little bit okay should we uh move off of survival cannibalism and talk a little bit about customary cannibalism sure so survival cannibalism is when you have to engage in cannibalism in order to survive mm-hmm. customary cannibalism is cannibalism either within your own kin group or outside of your kin group. Mm-hmm. So endocannibalism is within the consumer's kin group, and it's usually done to honor the dead or to gain an aspect of the person, like their wisdom. So many groups might engage in cannibalism posthumously in order to honor that person, and they might also want to say say that person was very revered. They're a leader in in your group and so you're trying to gain their wisdom so you eat their brain or maybe they were very glib and so you eat their tongue in in order to gain like their skill in speech i wonder if you uh could ever become so comfortable with that that you kind of joke about it and and while the person's still alive like oh johnny johnny's a fast talker i'm gonna i'm gonna eat your tongue someday Uh, when you're dead and gone i'm gonna eat your tongue oh susan she is Sexy Susan, I can't wait to eat her ass. Anyway, endocannibalism. Back to millennials. <laughs> uh, so uh, a, an example that comes up over and over again, if you are looking into cannibalism like us, is the 4A people. The 4A people are from New Guinea, and they consumed their dead out of respect. So 
Sorry, we discussed this ahead of time. I, I feel like I should have a timer available because every resource that we've looked into in regards to uh, cannibalism, specifically customary cannibalism, they always talk about the foray. So uh, I wanted to give you like a 60 second time to talk about, to just like blast through the foray people as, as quickly as possible. So I mean, I'll do my best, I, I wanna, guess. I want to cue up some music for you. Are you ready? Uh, uh, I am ready. Okay. Tell us about the 4A people in three, two, one, go. The 4A people believed that consuming their dead uh, was an act of respect. They did this by asking somebody before they died what they wanted to be done with their body. A problem with this is that a disease began to spread in the 4A people called Kuru. Kuru made people laugh uncontrollably. They had shakes, muscle jerks, and an inability to swallow, and eventually death. This kuru was a disease like mad cow disease, where the cerebellum is full of holes and caused by consuming neurological tissue. So they eventually die from this disease. So kuru is caused by eating the brain of an infected person with kuru. Done. Beautiful. All right. Yeah, that was that was less than 45 seconds. Okay, let's do it again. See if you can go faster. Oh, I don't, I don't want to do that. This, um, the again, the, the thing that really got to me is when they describe this disease as the laughing disease. Can you imagine of dying of something that's called the laughing disease? So what they said is that they would look into the huts. They would hear laughter, and this disease is already well known. So they would look into the hut of somebody who is laughing, and they would see them on the ground, on their sleeping, like in their bed, and just like their face completely blank just laughing Mm -hmm. and it was terrifying because they obviously had no control and they have no control because their brain is full of holes from prions which we talked about before in last episode which are the folded proteins so when they see them on the floor of the hut just laughing uncontrollably they're like oh he's just rewatched the office again i i thought he was going to do something productive today but instead he's just been like binge watching netflix absolutely they did think that uh, Kuru was caused by sorcerers, so they, they thought it was a curse, basically, and that there was no cure because people were, were cursing them to basically decay. They would take, I'm not sure, I can't remember exactly if it was an object or part of like the person, like hair or something mm-hmm. like that, and then bury it into the swamp, and as the bag of items decayed, so would the person decay. Mm. However, this was obviously proved false uh, eventually. So anthropologists came into the region and had a hard time figuring out why these people were suffering from the disease and eventually found out that they were cannibalistic, but they were, obviously this is a, an act of reverence for, for these people. It's, it's not uh, a desecration of the bodies to eat them. Mm-hmm. It's something that the dead wanted to be done to them. Which I can kind of... I can get in a certain sense. It is it all that different from well, your gran specifically requested that when she passes on, uh, she wants to be cremated and she wants the urn put up in the mantelpiece, or uh, your dad's got like the his cemetery, you know, his plot in the cemetery picked out. Like my my parents have their plots picked out, and they I'm pretty sure they have their headstones picked out, which is. Some would say very morbid, but that's just their way of 
leaving a part of themselves and living on in the lives of their descendants, right? My own grandmother, before she passed, told my mother that she wanted the children to put her ashes on the mantelpiece and ask her questions so that she would still feel a part of the family. I don't know. I I feel like that's kind of leaving the door open for like... Spooky hauntings. Maybe, or just like completely misusing your image after you've gone and it's like... What's that, Grandma? You want me to kill the whole family? Oh, I don't think it... Oh, do, do it now? Get get the axe? Okay, Grandma, if you say so. And then, you know, you turn around to the police after the fact, and you're like, well, my granny told me to do it, so, like... And where is this woman? She, You're looking right at her, officer. There she is. Officer. You're looking at her, officer. <laughs> Okay, um, so I think it, it's wrong to, to look at these acts uh, of cannibalism and say, oh, well, they're primitive people, and therefore, of course, they're cannibals. I think it's better to look and see, well, this is a, a funerary custom and a funerary rite here, and it is a way to honor the dead. And in fact, there is evidence that a lot of cannibalism happened with our own ancestors in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um in terms of, like, the Neanderthals and the Homo sapiens. Yeah, I, d- I think the jury is still out on that, but it's it's out on that because of the limited resources that we have when it comes to actually analyzing the, the remains of these individuals. So you can look at the... You can come across a dig site and you can find what you've identified as being a cooking area and you can find what are clearly Neanderthal bones inside of the the cooking area of, of what would have been Homo sapiens. However, there is nothing to say that the Neanderthal bones that you're looking at weren't swept down river by a flood and then happened to randomly end up in another dig site, what would later become another dig site, or that what you're looking at isn't in fact a cooking area at all and you've just misidentified it. So, yeah, I think there, there's evidence for and against, but if we're working backwards off the idea that essentially humans are humans wherever you go and people are the same wherever you go and people have always been the same, if people are currently engaging in cannibalism or have engaged in cannibalism and uh, the recorded past, then, yeah, chances are that our, our early ancestors did too. I think um, there's a great quote from, again, Bill Sheets book. Uh, at the beginning of a, the chapter that talks about the 4A people, there is, I can't remember his name, but he, he basically says that he's talking to the 4A people and says, well, you you shouldn't engage in cannibalism. You, you you mustn't do this. And they asked him, well, why not? And he said, I couldn't think of a reason. I couldn't think of why it was wrong. And my only answer could be, well, you just mustn't. And I think that's really indicative of our own cultural taboos and cultural bias mm-hmm. in terms of cannibalism and the way that we treat our dead. For some for, for some groups uh it's considered 
uh, a practice to leave the dead in front of everybody else so that everybody can come and say goodbye mm -hmm. so that you know you have a, an aspect of that person with you uh what was that show we were watching uh dark tourist yeah where he travels to i believe he was in the forests of myanmar and they have a practice where if somebody is particularly revered in their group they will mummify their remains and they will keep the they will periodically bring the remains out and display and people will come and bring offerings to uh the the mummified person so they have almost like an extended it only goes on for a certain period of time sure they keep the remains for a year before mm -hmm. they bury him and even after they bury him or her they still like they go back to the grave take the person out clean them and wrap them again so yeah. it's, it's a reverence for the person who died and i think to me i remember as a child going to funerals and i i was very unnerved by not necessarily the dead person that i was seeing but the fact that we put makeup on dead people if you were to sit and describe the process of modern funerals to many people if they had never been to a funeral before and you were describing it in the abstract it would sound just incredibly macabre and it would sound incredibly strange i think that's the it's the thing about death it's so incredibly final there there are so many more questions than there are answers. And if it's the death of a loved one especially, it's really hard to come to terms with in your own terms. I think some of the things that we then resort to are customary practices, the practices of our families or our communities or our, our particular religion or our particular country, because it then becomes almost like a default setting for dealing with something that is out of the ordinary for you but it's just another way to tackle a problem that none of us or at the very least very few of us have a healthy way of dealing with there's no one size fits all answer here so maybe it is burying your granny in a plot of land a couple of miles away from your house or Maybe it is mummifying your granny and keeping her in the upstairs attic so that you can go and you know, ask her questions and stuff uh, over the course of the year and, and then like have a big feast. Who knows? I certainly don't. I do but like the big feast part, though. That'd be quite nice. You just like food. Uh, yeah. Even after this, I do. Certainly. Um, so that is an example of endo-cannibalism within a group. But there's also, of course, customary exo-cannibalism, which is outside of your kin group. And often this is based in hatred, rage, disdain, and humiliation. So an example of this would be the Myanmar people from Papua New Guinea. In this time period, we're probably talking about pre-1960s. So I'm not sure entirely when... Uh, so it's before plastic furniture. Sure. Um, and it's before... Uh, so we're definitely talking before bell bottoms. Women aren't currently getting out in the workforce. They're, they're in the kitchen. And it's before... I mean, it's before the Beatles. So it's basically before written history. So anyway, uh, this group of people there were there were several different villages there were some people who lived in the mountains some people who lived down in the valley they would conduct raids on the other villages and 
After killing their enemies, they would chop off the heads and take out the entrails and then carry the bodies back with them and then eat them. They would also take a lot of the women, I think, as slaves or potential partners. Mm -hmm. And when asked why they ate the dead, they said the other tribe was, quote unquote, good meat and asked why they would leave the bodies of their enemies that they had gone through so much trouble to kill. This practice of raiding towns and eating the dead continued until 1960s when I believe uh, a group of people engaged in a raid, uh, murdered people in a village, took back bodies, and were then arrested and executed for murder. Mm -hmm. So at a societal level, they've changed their view on what it means to have a conflict with enemies in in neighboring groups or neighboring tribes. They've decided that that is... A, a criminal offense as opposed to just a, a customary thing. I don't think they decided that. I think it was decided for them. Oh, so oh, so somebody decided on the behalf of this small group of native individuals. Yes. Ah, how unusual. Yeah, I mean, it's never happened before. Unprecedented, I yeah, believe. Probably never happen again. So it- to me, consuming so consuming your dead is is an act of reverence, right? But consuming your enemies is a is an act of like final humiliation. You are so beneath me that you are basically an animal and I can use your body for for food, for sustenance. It's strange though, isn't it? It kind of sits in opposition to the other ideas that we're just talking about, like eating somebody as a funerary custom because it's it's a a kind of reverence for the person that they were and the way they lived their lives versus eating somebody as the ultimate power move as as like the biggest way to, to say fuck you. Yeah, it, it's strange that you can... Ha- well, I guess humans are all about holding two opposing ideas in their heads at the same time and somehow making them work, right? Certainly. So, moving away from customary cannibalism, why don't we get into the weird and wacky world? Of medical cannibalism. Oh, I've been waiting for this one. (laughs) Me too. I'm very psyched. Uh, So medical cannibalism is the consumption of the human body, dead or alive, or parts of the human body to treat illness or disease. So we've talked a lot about um, the idea of cannibalism as a racist lens, cannibalism in groups that maybe you're not familiar with or are certainly not our own native groups. No, they're not our law. Our, our <laughs> law are all right. Yeah, but those law. Our law would never do that. No. I'll tell you that much. No, no. Um, only, only they would and they not did. our boys. They, they did. They did? They did. They did. Um, so so let's, let's go back to the 12th century. Maybe you've got alopecia, which is full body hair loss. Maybe you have a parasite or intestinal troubles. I bet I could sell you some first-rate medicine, and that medicine is asphalt. <laughs> it's what? Come again, good sir? Uh, it's great. It's it's good for the body. Uh, it will get rid of all, all the bad things. It's some asphalt that I found floating in the Dead Sea, so it's got a bit of sulfur in there. Uh-huh. You just pop it down. Cure you right up. I'm actually, I'm fit as a fiddle. I, I've never been healthier, but I do, um, I'm having some trouble back in my car out of my, uh, out of the patch of ground outside my house. Will it work for that? No, I don't think so. I, It'll never I take off. No, I couldn't like put it's it on the ground or Why anything. would you waste it for that? Put it in your mouth. <laughs> Eat it. Um, so, bitman, uh, bitumen, as I, it was called. I think you 
I think you're trying not to pronounce it as bitumen. I, I wasn't actually. <laughs> <laughs> Some people refer to it as bitumen. And that's that's not me joking. Some people do refer to it as bitumen. Right. Well, I'm going to refer to it as bitumen. And I'll be referring to it as bitumen. <laughs> right. So bitumen, uh, or basically the, the precursor to asphalt, uh, was used as a medicine, uh, and especially in the Middle East. So it was found floating on the Dead Sea, and people would take it in and, and eat it. It, ha- it does have antimicrobial and biocidal properties, which means killing harmful organisms. And mummia is the name that it was given. Mummia referred to natural asphalt. Um, 12th century Arabic texts call this mummia a medicine for treating alopecia, intestinal parasites, and gynecological disorders. Yeah, it's um, it sounds like the first panacea, doesn't it? it? It sounds like something that would be hawked by a snake oil salesman in the 19th century. Like, it'll cure everything. You got gout, you got fallen down disease, you got the wacky whoopsies, you got the oopsie doopsies. Oh. Great. I think you should uh, leave the podcast and go into selling all sorts of fake cures. See you later, folks. I'm off to make my fortune. So bitumen was was widely used not only in the Middle East, but also in Europe. And it was so widely used that it began to become scarce. And people at this time were were starting to excavate mummies. Mm -hmm. And on mummies, they saw this black substance, and they assumed that it was bitumen. They assumed that they were basically creating, mummifying people through the use of asphalt. And so they scraped it off corpses and and used it as a substitute for asphalt as a medicine. And this is partly because they saw it as the substance and assumed it was asphalt, and partly because of a mistranslation. So mummia used to mean just asphalt, but then it started to mean any kind of mummy. So people were scraping off this black substance off of mummies and eventually stopped caring that they were trying to get asphalt and started caring about eating the mummies. <laughs> that is so dumb. It that That is so... That would be like if you were trying to get oil for your car... And you went to the supermarket and you came across peanut oil. And so you you were like, that's all the same. And then you start filling up your Toyota with, you know, like a jug of sunflower oil. And you're like, oh, I should get like 100 miles to the gallon on this thing. It, it, it's so it's so dumb. It's so dumb. Uh, it's dumb, but wholly human, isn't it? It's a very human, <laughs> dumb thing to do. So uh, from the 17th century onward, the term mummia was applied to any medicated flesh used in medicine, including that of animals and humans. The trade became amplified uh, with an enormous variety of fake substitutes as well. So what people used to do was go to Egypt, and Egypt specifically, to excavate mummies. They would then (laughs) import these mummies into Europe and sell either the whole mummy or powdered parts mm-hmm. of the mummy. So you could either buy a hand or a foot of a mummy, or you could buy mummy powder. You could also buy topical salves mm-hmm. um, of powdered mummy. 
So here are the choices for how to use mummy. Mm -hmm. You could either take powdered mummy and tip it into a drink and guzzle it down. Or Delicious. you could apply it topically from either like a salve or uh, a cloth that had been covered in in remains of a human being. Mummy goo. Yeah. Uh... Mummy goo goo. Um, how, if you had to do it, let's say that you've got the whoopsie doopsies, you've got the fallen down disease, and somebody's come to you and they've said... Uh, you've got a terminal case of the whoopsie doopsies, which is a really horrible way to go. Because first you whoopsie, then, then you, you doopsie, and just when you think you're done with doopsieing, there's one final whoopsie, and then you're done. So you've got the whoopsie doopsies, and somebody comes to you, and they're like, I don't know what's good for what ails you. He's back again. You need some mummia. Uh, what would you prefer? Rubbing the mummy goo on yourself or turning it into a shake and drinking it? Would you sniff it as a powder with that? I think, personally, I'd go for topical, you know, because whoopsie-dipsy, that, that's how you treat the whoopsie-dipsy. Well, it's a skin disease. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, obviously. Um, and also because at this time, using human fat as a topical treatment was not unheard of, was quite common, actually. Given that a lot of soap used to be made from rendered human fat, makes a lot of sense. So there were a lot of cases of cannibalism in Europe at this time, right? In terms of what people would maybe not term as cannibalism, I guess. They would not see a mummy as a human being, and therefore, how could this possibly be cannibalism? Yes, this is where we enter the world of uh, Europe. I would never! Yeah, some severe European hypocrisy and this notion of, no, no, darling, what we do, it's not cannibalism, you don't understand. It's simply for our health. Yes, it's, it's for your humours. Well, I'm not. I'm not some savage. I'm not I'm gorging not, on brains. Am I primitive? Certainly not. No. Now pass me that hand so I can rub it on me and get rid of my whoopsie doopsies. So by the 18th century, mummia was sold in all pharmacies, basically across Europe. It was even sold. There were some versions called mummia vera egyptica. Mm, um, fancy. Yeah. Which basically refers to, quote-unquote, real Egyptian mummies, because ah. mummia started to get so widely used, it became hard to acquire. The Egyptian government started to ban people excavating tombs in order to export mummies, uh, and so... People are having a hard time getting a hold of mummies, right? So then, of course, a lucrative black market popped up where substitutes started showing up. So a lot of times these were dried cadavers of slaves. So not pe what people wanted were, of course, like what they thought was royalty. Egyptian kings. Like, that's got to be the tagline, right? Live like a king. Eat, eat a, a king. king. Yeah. Sure. And that's where Burger King came from. Um, ironically, the mummies that they were consuming were not kings. They would have been probably... If you tell me that they were Jews, <laughs> I will lose my mind. <laughs> they were not. But they would have been probably middle class to upper class citizens of of Egypt. And because at this time, during that time period, uh, mummification became a popular burial rite. Mm -hmm. Um. And and those were the easiest tombs to find because, of course, 
kings were buried very secretively. Yeah, and presumably when you're getting buried, when you're paying for burial, you're paying by the foot, right? Like how, okay, how deep do you want it? Because I can bury you a foot deep, but in a week's time, the jackals are going to be like chewing on your remains and dragging you halfway across the desert. Or I can give you our King Tut Platinum package and I'll put you a mile down there. It will take us about a year to bury you, but they will never find your body. And I mean that like a promise, not a threat. So, uh, yeah, there were substitutes popping up where slaves uh, were used in mummia. There were also dried corpses of pilgrims who were trying to make their way to Mecca, who had perished on their way and had been mummified by the desert sand. Mm -hmm. Um, And then those of travelers who had died in the Libyan desert. And so these were only the substitutes that came from the Middle East. There were other people trying to break into the market by digging up corpses in... Europe, mummifying them, and then selling them as genuine mummies. It's very reminiscent of Burke and Hare and uh, their work when people ran out of cadavers to use, or fresh cadavers to use for medical purposes uh, in the study of human anatomy and how to cure various different diseases. You got to have a plan B. You got to find a different. You got to find a different supply, and if you can't find a different supply you make a different supply. Certainly. And it was lucrative because Mamiya was so popular. And as late as 1924, a kilogram of mummy powder cost 12 gold marks in Germany. So... Uh, what would... Okay. <laughs> okay, I'm not even going to question it. I'm not even going to question by that stage. Like, by that stage, you have medicine. At that stage, you have antibiotics. You've you've discovered penicillin. People are setting about curing polio, for God's sake. And you're like, no, no, nothing's going to do it but some grade A mummy goo. I mean... I will pay the highest price for your finest mummy so that I might rub it on my nether regions to cure my whoopsie doopsies. (laughs) They are terrible. I have both the whoopsie and the doopsie. Give me that mummy hand. I'm done. Are you? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> so, um, yeah, in terms of hypocrisy, Europeans do it best, I think, considering these were the exact same people who would then later go to the West Indies and claim that those people were cannibals. Start waggling fingers. Mm-mm-mm. This isn't, of course, the only instance of cannibalism in Europe. And maybe uh, even more popular was blood drinking. Let's get into blood drinking. So before blood drinking, bloodletting, which you're probably familiar with, is the instance of cutting a person to let blood out in order to cure several different ailments. Mm -hmm. For example, fever, too much blood, headache. Too much blood and menstruation, obviously, way too much blood. You got so much blood inside your lady parts, it's just trying to get out once a month. <laughs> that's, that's what the issue is. Mm-hmm. Um, Ladies, I've solved it. Don't you worry. Diva cups no more. Blood is what you need. Yeah, you should be bleeding from multiple parts of your body at one time. 
that'll that'll be so much more socially uh acceptable don't worry about like walking into the office and like do you have enough tampons in your handbag no no just walk into the office with your arms and legs like riddled with (laughs) with gouges and gashes your misogynistic boss will be a lot more on board for that I mean, he probably would be, let's be honest. Um, Barbara's doing something different these days. <laughs> her humors look great! Barbara's, like, dragging herself into the <laughs> office by her arms because she's, like, too weak from all the bloodletting. Um, so, uh, for some people, for example, if you were an epileptic, they would cut, let the blood drain, and then have you drink the blood back in, in an attempt to cure your epilepsy. And some epileptics even stood next to the execution platforms, ready to guzzle down that sweet, sweet red nectar. It seems like when you're talking about crazy medical history and various different cure-alls, epilepsy seems to be something that comes up time and time again. I uh, feel so bad. I mean, you know, it must be horrible to have any form of epilepsy, full stop. But you really have to feel for people living several hundred years ago if they had epilepsy. And if people weren't immediately like, oh, he's got a demon that lives inside of him. Let's get Kill him. This man needs an exorcism. Uh, how do you cure it? How do you cure something that you can't really see every so often? It just gives you a bout of fits, you know, or, um, you know, he, he, he began like dancing wildly, um, which isn't epilepsy. He was just incredibly drunk and his favorite song came on. But the point is that. It, Gregorian Chance, Volume 12. <laughs> that's an absolute banger. The point is, how do you even set about curing something that seems to have no cause, seems to have no forewarning, and, and it's something that you can't see on a surface level? Well, you give him blood to drink. Oh, yeah, obviously. Well, that was going to be my next suggestion. So there was a 16th century German-Swiss physician named Parcelus? Parcelus. That's what I'm going to go with. Not parsley? Uh, Don't care if I'm wrong. It's parcelus. Parsley to his friends. He believed that uh, blood was good for what ails you. Uh, Many poor Germans who couldn't afford the dried blood pills at the pharmacy would beg the executioner for a cup of still warm condemned blood. A last known attempt was made in Germany to swallow blood at the scaffold in 1908. Why does it always get back to Germany when we talk about <laughs> these things? I really, I don't want to cast aspersions. I don't want to jump to conclusions. But guys, if you don't stop doing creepy shit, people are going to start talking. So there's even a, a 1679 recipe from a Franciscan apothecary that describes how to make blood into marmalade in case you want your blood on toast. Yeah, I mean, how are you eating your blood? Uh, usually I take it in a shake. Because I'm health conscious. A shake in the morning, a shake in the afternoon, and then... Epilepsy gone! (laughs) And then an entire person for dinner. Um, (laughs) So, this show isn't called Enter the Rabbit Hole for Nothing. It certainly isn't. Um, I had to track down that recipe. Please tell me, how can I make blood marmalade in my kitchen? It's lockdown. I've learned how to make as many different breads. As humanly possible. I can now do a handstand. Uh, I've mastered every instrument. I wanted to learn how to play. All that's left, blood marmalade. Mmm, how do you make it? So, let the blood dry into a sticky mess, and then place it upon a flat, smooth table of softwood 
and cut it into little slices, allowing its watery part to drip away. When it is no longer dripping, place it on a stove and stir it into a batter with a knife. When it is absolutely dry, place it immediately in a very warm bronze mortar and pound it, forcing it through a sieve of finest silk. When it has been sieved, seal it in a glass jar. Renew it in the spring of every year. Just like Mama used to make. Mmm. I would love to come across that in a cooking blog and have it be like, this is such a treat for those rainy days. I remember a few years ago, I was going through this real phase where I would go out in the autumn and it would be those real crisp mornings and there's nothing that gets you warmed up better than a nice cup of hot blood. Anyways, here's the recipe. And and you're scrolling through because you're like, just get to the blood marmalade. Also, I've read enough recipes online that I've then tried to replicate in real life to know. I, I, I'm just going to say, it, I don't think this would work. How much blood are you putting on your smooth table your, your of soft wood? I mean, that's just going to stay in your table. Well, maybe you have a specific table for blood marmalade. <laughs> so what you need to do is have a list that, like, you will need one blood table. Mm-hmm. Parentheses, <laughs> preferably high-end. One uh, warmed bronze mortar. Uh, yeah, well, my mortar is, like, nickel at best, so... Ooh, I don't know. I mean, you could probably substitute a nickel mortar. Will it be the same in the end? Maybe not, but... This is like when somebody gets it into their head, like, oh, I'm going to make kombucha. Kombucha's going to be my new thing. Uh, it's probably that easy to make. It's just a bunch of stuff fizzing away in a bottle. And then you're like, oh startup costs and making kombucha like this is way you know but you're already in over your head you've told all your friends that they're gonna get fresh kombucha next month so you're like oh i guess i'm gonna buy like another kombucha kit off of amazon i i sound like i've been uh, stung by the kombucha craze <laughs> but my point is yeah this sounds like an awful lot of work and and i think i would i think i would really need to see it in a youtube video uh well lucky for you no i'm just kidding Hey, what up, guys? I'm going to be showing you how to make that sweet, sweet blood marmalade. But before, don't forget to smash, smash that like button. button. All right, so you're going to need a... <laughs> Please, sir, let me go. You're going to need a high-quality virgin, not just any virgin will do. Please, sir. Okay, um, before you dismiss blood drinking as a completely uh, historic fancy, there are still modern-day vampires. A consensual blood-drinking community exists where the drinkers imbibe blood by either collecting the blood intravenously or cutting the skin with a scalpel and drinking it directly from the body. Many of these blood drinkers believe it gives them renewed energy and helps them stop stomach aches or stomach cramps. And they're not and rice groupies. Well, I mean, I I don't I can't speak for their personal preference. There might be a little bit of lace going on. There might be some frilled collars. There might even be some vests made of satin. We can't say that hundred percent. That's true. We cannot. But for the most part, the people who engage in this practice are 
fairly quote unquote normal. Um, many of them are nurses, secretaries, bar staff. They've um, got jobs. They get up in the morning, they put the trousers on one leg at a time, and then they look at those trousers and they say, Oh, that's about Eric's blood. Oh, I should give Eric a call. Man, that guy was tasty. I have nothing to add. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so they could be churchgoers or atheists, but basically they're just everyday folk. So the question is, uh, would you drink someone's blood if it gave you renewed energy? Would you do it in the morning like like a cup of coffee? Yeah, I did get into that bulletproof coffee for uh, phase for a little bit. That's true, and I did think it was disgusting. You know, and I'm going to say, like, did it give me more energy and a little bit of a, a boost? You know, did it have that nice slow burn throughout the morning? Yes, it did. Did it taste like drinking a cup of hot, greasy mess? Yes, it did. So, I'm going to say maybe. I, uh, although I'm probably more likely to eat the blood marmalade on toast than I am to... Let's be honest. Although, I did notice the marmalade is missing sugar. So, I don't know how I really feel about it. I mean, unless that, like, negates the whole health properties of the blood marmalade, get some get some sugar in there. Yeah. And some spices. That's the whole point. Yeah. I don't think Paddington would be into it. Um, if you thought that all this crazy wackiness, the mamia, the bloodletting, if you thought that people no longer engage in medical cannibalism in this day and age in the West... In the upper echelons of celebrity society, you, my friend. <gasps> Not my celebrities. Oh, yes, your celebrities. You, my friend, would be dead wrong. Eating placenta, placentophagy, is still very much a thing, and it seems to be like a growing market. Okay, so many celebrities have gone on record as saying that after having given birth, they have eaten their placenta. Now, they claim that it can reduce the risk of postpartum stress, stimulate milk production, and increase energy levels, which I totally get. If you, especially if you're a new mother, like a first-time mother, there are a multitude of things that you're worrying about. And if somebody tells you that eating your placenta can not only make you feel better going through those first rough few months where your energy levels are super low, you're not getting a full night's sleep, and it's good for your baby, seems like a bit of a no-brainer. Let's be honest, all the pregnancy websites and books all have like all these weird tips and tricks. It's like, 10 more tricks to smooth that belly and get you feeling energized. I, I feel really bad for first-time parents anyway, but they're, they are the, the prey for this market of fear, really. It's like, oh, well, you could buy, like, this cheaper stroller, but I, get, I guess you don't want your child to have fingers after that one, like, snaps its fingers off on the hinges or... To be fair, I do have a scar on my face from when I was a child and was slashed by my stroller down to the bone. It's the exception rather than the rule. <laughs> but let's be honest, for the most part, your stroller is safe. Yeah. <laughs> that was a long time ago. I mean, one of my sisters fell out of her high chair, apparently, onto what my parents said was just like slate flooring. They just had like slate tiles instead of, this was this was before like plastic lino was uh, the, the fad. And, uh, like, split her face open. And she's fine. She's fine. She's living a healthy, productive life. So, placenta. 
it can be consumed in many different forms, just like the panaceas of old, including smoothies. Uh, but a growing practice is having a doctor take your placenta and turn it into pill form after it's steamed, dehydrated, pulverized, and then placed inside of tiny capsules. So this is typically carried out by a third-party company. Uh, however, in the US, there are no strict laws or guidelines covering this. How do you know that what you're getting is strictly your own placenta? That's a great question. I mean, especially if there are no guidelines. Like, surely they're telling everybody it's your own placenta. But I think all of us are well-versed enough in, like, big pharma to know that they bullshit out their asses. I mean, my concern would be less that what you're getting is your placenta, uh, 100% your placenta, and that it hasn't been stepped on, shall we say? Because if you increase the amount of supply that you have, you can then satisfy more demand. I The truth is, I just don't know. And I think this is one of the things that I would be skeptical about if this were something that were being carried out in an NHS hospital and one of the aftercare options were, oh, that placenta, what would you like us to do with it? Would you like us to make it in some food for you and then you and your you can have it for the health of you and your baby that would be one thing because there you know there is uh there's there are watchdogs in place there to make sure that it's being done correctly but if it's being done by a third party company i for one would be much more skeptical so celebrities who have spoken of eating their placentas include me and bialik of uh, big bang theory and blossom fame Alicia Silverstone of Clueless fame. Uh, January Jones, who, when I mentioned her to you earlier, you asked, is she a porn star? Not to my knowledge, but you may have seen her in Mad Men and X-Men First Class. I'm so sorry, January Jones. It's just your name is a bit porn starry. Wow. What? I don't know if that's like a put down or a compliment. No, it's a, it's an excellent name. It sounds like a superhero name. Like I mean, she was in X-Men First Class. And not one, but two Kardashians, both Kim and Courtney have eaten their placenta. Their respective placenta. They didn't eat each other's placentas that we're aware of. So placenting eating seems relatively low risk. I think there have been one or two studies conducted on uh, pill eating and cooking and then consuming placentas respectively that have shown some kind of negative side effects in the health of the babies. However, wide-ranging studies have yet to be carried out. Most of the data is self-reported by new mums and is therefore anecdotal at best. However, one expert in medical anthropology professor, Sharon Young of the University of Nevada, has said, although individuals taking placenta supplements did experience hormone changes not seen in women taking the placebo, this wasn't related to changes in mood, energy, or other effects typically reported by placentophagy advocates, and there was no change in iron status related to placentophagy, which basically means that a lot of the quote-unquote benefits of eating your placenta may just be psychosomatic. Well, I just had a, a quick question. In terms of people reasons why someone would eat their placenta, is it because, like... We see animals eating their placenta. I think part of the rationale behind this is that humans are the only mammals who don't eat the placenta after birth. 
But we also, I, I think I'd like to clarify, a lot of animals eat their placenta after birth so that there is no sign of the birth and therefore, like, predators don't come after them. It's true. I mean, we're we're the only mammals that are destroying the, the planet. We're also the only mammals that wear shoes. Uh, unless you put tiny booties on your dog, like when it goes outside in the rain. But, you, you know, your dog isn't choosing to do that. Uh, we're also the only mammals that drive cars, and we're the only mammals that uh, watch pornography. Uh, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk back in that. We don't know what chimpanzees and That's dolphins not true. would do. Uh, pandas. Pandas watch pornography. You get <laughs> the fuck out. Pandas watch pornography? People create... Panda porn. Well, I didn't think the pandas were producing it. I didn't think that's what they'd been up to instead of like... Sure, but this is the problem that pandas don't procreate, right? So humans have created panda porn to get pandas in the mood for procreating. We need to stop this podcast right now so that I can watch some panda porn. I hope that there is like a 70s soundtrack underneath it and it's like... And then there's like... A panda female, like, just lounging in her apartment, and then all of a sudden, like, a ding-dong, and then there's, like, a panda at the front door with, like, a pizza, and he's, like, (laughs) bamboo pizza. And Um, she's, like, So what I am curious about is whether uh, it's actual pandas, or if it's people in panda costumes. Maybe it's January Jones in a panda costume (laughs) in one of her early roles. I'm sorry, please don't come after me, January Jones. I mean, given, I think pandas having sex is kind of, it might be a myth. I think it might be like uh, like a like a cryptid, like people have heard about pandas having sex, but nobody's actually witnessed it. So I am going for myself, I'm going to assume that it's people in panda costumes. I mean, I'd like to think that just because it's funnier. Yeah. Um, so at the beginning of the movie, they're just kind of like rolling around in the ground, just like playfully like eating bamboo and stuff. And then they get to it. And then it's just like this guy just railing this woman uh, who's who's dressed like a bear. So it's, it's just furry porn, really. Yeah. Actually, a topic that we <laughs> might cover in the future. No spoilers. <laughs> Um, quickly, I'd like to cover, not panda porn, but a separate instance of medical cannibalism, and that is Chinese filial cannibalism. So keeping it in China. Yeah, you know, not pandas, but panda adjacent. Sure. So medical cannibalism became popular in the Tang Dynasty, which was from like 608 CE to 907. So anthropologists believe that it became popular through Buddhism. Like, Buddhist tales inspired self-sacrifice. For example, there's the tale of Sujati, who fed his flesh to his parents in order to keep them alive. And they believe that this tale was co-opted into the tale of a daughter-in-law who cut off a slice of her thigh to make into a stew for her sick mother-in-law. This practice supposedly existed throughout this dynasty, and Chen... Boy. I'm going to say Chen Zhangqi, maybe. Wrote the Bankao Shiyi, which states that human meat can heal feebleness and illness. Mm. So this is kind of an extension of the filial nature of Confucianism in that your parent is sick and supposedly the only thing that can heal them is some of your own flesh. And so people would 
cut off usually their thighs, but sometimes like a finger in order to heal their parents. So it's self-sacrificing. So the next time one of your friends complains about having too much homework, uh, how your parents will accept nothing less than an A+, how you don't get to choose what university you're going to go to or what course you're going to study, be like, hey, at least you got all 10 fingers, eh? Let's see those thighs. No, I'm not seeing any, like, chunks of thigh missing because you made it into a nice soup for your mum when she had a bit of a cold. Count yourself lucky. Spoiled. Don't even know you were born. Yeah, this just, this does sound like an extension of the the uh, filial piety, which we still see to this day in many parts of Asia, where the family comes first, uh, before the child, the children are kind of paying back their parents for raising them, essentially, and so they're doing their mom and dad a solid for feeding them parts of themselves when, when they're ill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about this in, in terms of, well, I don't know if we've covered this before, but if your parent was really sick, if your mom needed a new kidney and you found out that you were a match, you would probably donate a kidney, right? Yeah. Yeah. The only difference here, I suppose, is that you're not giving the kidney to your mum, who is then, you know, like, thanks, and then, like, throwing it into a frying pan with some, like, onions, maybe some mushrooms, a little bit of garlic, cracked black pepper, and uh, and then just, like, gobbling it down in front of you. I mean, you don't know my family life. That's true. I really don't. Okay, so, should we talk a little bit about cannibalism in folklore? Yeah, I know that there was a Scottish story that you'd like to bring up. Scottish. Oh boy. You got real American there. Scottish story. Yeah, I'm going to give you a Scottish story from Scotland. Just sounds Scot Scotland sounds like <laughs> Yeah, I know. I sounds like it. a really shitty place. Uh shout out to my dad. Thank you so much dad for switching me on to this story. I'd actually heard this before uh years back when I visited the Edinburgh Dungeon, which is one of Edinburgh's many fantastic tourist attractions. Again, not employed by the Edinburgh Tourist Tourism Board, but they do have a lot of good stuff there. Also, it is beautiful. You should definitely visit Edinburgh. Yeah, it's amazing. One of my favorite places. So this is the story of Alexander Sonny Bean. Alexander Bean is said to have lived around about the 15-1600s. He was said to be a tanner by trade, but he and his wife, Black Agnes Douglas, found a different way to make money, robbing and murdering travels who passed their cave-dwelling abode in Benin, Ayrshire. By the way, I, I'm sure this goes without saying, but if somebody's referred to as as Black, as, as like a nickname, it probably, it means that she's either like incredibly dirty or doesn't have particularly good standing in her community. I did not know that. Uh, yeah, so they, in some reports, they think that Agnes Douglas was a witch or had witchy qualities, which I guess earned her this particular uh, nickname. So the family were believed to have had 14 children themselves and 36 grandchildren who were supposedly the product of incest. So straight up, we've got uh, murder, we've got robbery, and then a bit of incest as well. All the big names. All the big names. So unsuspecting travellers would be pulled from their horses and killed. They were then either butchered and eaten immediately, or pickled for later use. Gotta save save meat. Don't waste it. Yeah. If, If you were starving and you had to eat some preserved human flesh, would you go pickled? Oh, pickled over salted? Yeah. So you do like a nice like uh like chutney. 
like a like a kneecap chutney or something. Yeah, you chop it up real fine so you don't know. Yeah, you have that and a bit of cheese and a bit of toast. It's good eating. Lie to yourself. Yeah. So uh, their valuables were stored and their bare bones were thrown into the sea. Now, in total, they may have murdered and eaten over 1,000 people over a 45-year period. I am making a very disbelieving face right now. Hmm. One of their potential victims escaped, and a mob was quickly assembled, led by none other than King James I himself. Rather than facing an actual court of law and being tried for murder and robbery, because bear in mind that Scotland at this time had a fairly robust legal system in place, they were immediately tortured and put to death. The men had their limbs chopped off and were allowed to bleed out until they died while the women were made to watch before being burned at the stake. In one account, Bean was heard to cry, It isn't over! It will never be over! I'm I'm ad-libbing a little bit. So, first accounts of Sonny Bean didn't appear in print until 1750. So this is where... We are treating this as folklore as opposed to an actual case of cannibalism. And there's maybe some doubt that creeps in. So it doesn't appear in print until 1750. The story was originally published in the Newgate Calendar, which was described as a popular crime catalogue that was originally published as a monthly bulletin of executions produced by the keeper of Newgate Prison in London. And it was subtitled The Malefactor's Bloody Register. Most of the accounts are highly embellished and drawn uncritically from others, often unverified sources, but mostly refer to social issues and contemporary events. It was similar to the cheap and popular serial literature printed during the 19th century, which were known as Penny Dreadfuls, and also featured sensational subject matter that focused on criminals, detectives, and supernatural entities, such as Sweeney Todd and Varney the Vampire. So all of this was a pull quote taken from the True Grime database in September 2020. So basically our main source for this story is already pretty dubious given its typical subject matter that it would cover. Also let's look at the name of Sonny Bean. So although Sonny is short for Alexander, Sonny, sometimes Sandy or Sanders or Sanic, was often used as what sounds like essentially like a a nickname or even a slur for Scottish people. So it would have been the 18th century equivalent of calling somebody a jock. So Sonny Bean as a character is is like calling somebody uh, Scotty McScotson or Jock McJockey. So it's a little bit dubious. The the story, by the way, incidentally, was uh, supposedly the, the inspiration for movies such as The Hills Have Eyes and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I think is pretty cool. So do you think this is kind of like anti-Scottish propaganda? Potentially. I don't know about anti-Scottish propaganda. I don't know if the author necessarily set out to make Scottish people look bad, but he would have, he probably wouldn't have had to work very hard in the eyes of certain kinds of people living south of the border in order to do that. I think it's easy to spin something that people want spun in the first place. So if you already have some suspicion, shall we say, or some grievances or prejudices against your northern neighbours who don't all speak English as their first language, the people who, the ones who do uh, speak like a strange dialect of your language that up until very recently had a different king from your own, they had a different government from your own, etc, etc. 
I mean, we, we see it in examples all across the world. Like, people seem to have problems with foreigners in general, but the biggest problems they have are with their next-door neighbours, who are more like them than they aren't, but they accuse them of, of being essentially the savages next door. So I think the author was potentially playing on ideas that were already out there in the zeitgeist. So it's not too much of a stretch to be like, and another thing, he was a cannibal. And another thing, his babies came from incest. And another thing, they killed over a thousand people. The the report of a thousand people dying over this length of time, they're throwing their bones in the sea, and then what? So, like, the bones never wash up anywhere? Yeah, especially because you're on the coast as well. Like, the bones aren't just gonna, like, float out to sea. They're gonna go to the shore. Yeah. I mean, there were reports of people being so suspicious of all these travelers going missing that they were accusing locals and, and putting them to death before they encountered the Bean clan, but... Even if these people lived in the back of beyond, there were so many of them altogether. So there's like a family of 45 and... Living in a cave. Living in a cave and they're busy butchering people left, right and center. And you're telling me that nobody asks questions? Also, we talked about it before. Like, surely it would have been easier. Like, a human being does not have that many calories. And surely it would have been easier to hunt game than it is to hunt someone that actually fights back. Yeah, for me, I think the thing that rang uh, alarm bells as soon as I read it as well, when, when we wrote our brief, we tried to break down human cannibalism into customary cannibalism, pathological or sexual cannibalism, uh, medical cannibalism, survival cannibalism, and the Sonny Bean story just doesn't fit comfortably in any one of those, and that for me was the biggest red flag. Yeah, I think the only thing it really fits in is into, like, cannibalism as a racist overtone, you know? Yeah. Are you racist against us? (laughs) Eh? Why am I doing a false Scottish accent? I don't know. (laughs) I don't really sound like that. It's been a very long day. Um, I think it's a fantastic story, but like Nessie, I I think it's one for the tourists more than it is to be taken as truth. You telling me Nessie isn't real? Is that what? I have strong suspicions (laughs) that she's just a log floating in a lake. I don't know. I don't know if we can do this podcast together anymore. Yeah, we're definitely not going to do that nasty series now. Um, so <laughs> let's hit one more folktale before we, we finish up this episode. Mm. And that is that of the Wendigo? Wendigo? I think it's Wendigo. Um, I like Wendigo. I'm going to go... <laughs> Wendigo. I think Wendigo is probably right, but I'm going to... Wendigos gonna... ain't my baby. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the Wend... Oh, I can't. I don't know. What, I don't know what to say anymore. Wendigo, Wendigo, Wendigo. The Wendigo is a creature of myth from the native people in in Canada and North America. So, thinking like Minnesota region to northern Canada. So um, we can assume that if he exists, he's going around people's houses, nothing them, and a nice pot roast. Yeah, he. Uh, he's real sorry. About everything. Oh, oh gosh. Hey, I, I wanted to wear your flesh there. It uh, sure is nice. And But no, it's, it's all right. Oh, all right. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Canadians and, and Midwestern people. Um, They're switching so, off in their droves. According to uh, legends, a 
Wendigo is created when uh, human resorts to cannibalism. So in a lot of these places, obviously, they're snow-covered, icy areas in the winter. And so people may have had to resort to cannibalism. And whenever they do that, they are turned into a Wendigo. It is possible as well. The other uh, origin story for Wendigo is when people display such greed that they basically twist themselves into a a disgusting creature. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a a warning for people to work together and to to cooperate, Mm -hmm. which I think kind of makes more sense to me. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of these, a lot of myth and folklore act as a cautionary tale, right? Sure. And the Wendigo is itself, I believe, a cannibal. So it is a person who's been twisted. And according to, to Basil Johnston, he's an Ojibwe teacher and scholar. So he's a, he's a native person. Uh, I think you pronounced all of that perfectly. I, apart from Basil, I'm going to say that this man's th- name is definitely Basil. Basil. Totally yeah. Sorry. Either that or he got bullied until he might still get bullied to this day. Anyway, according to him, the Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation, its desiccated skin pulled tautly over its bones. With its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion the ash grey of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets. The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton, recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody. Its body was unclean and suffering from suppurations of the flesh, giving off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption. So often the the Wendigo is displayed as kind of elongated limbs with antlers and carnivorous teeth mm-hmm. um, kind of decaying and rotting. Uh, it's, it's truly a terrifying picture, but I think... What we see in terms of cannibalism here is the idea of being a bad person turns you into a cannibal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of like when you play the original Fable on Xbox and when you start like doing bad things like killing your neighbor's chickens, then you start growing devil's horns and stuff like that. Yeah. It's exactly yeah. like that. Yeah. And then in Fable, they kind of took out the subplot where you had to eat the other characters in order to survive. Yeah, I mean, it was like an early draft of that, I guess. Um, there is something here, though, right? This notion that like doing bad deeds is bad for your soul, whatever you want to refer to as your soul, and, and that corrupts you and that, that changes how you look. And I guess there's a little bit of science behind that. You know, you only have to watch like a certain number of videos on YouTube where they're telling you to think different in order to walk different and, you know, striking power poses and how that affects how uh, people will view you in the boardroom. So basically saying, like, don't be super greedy because when your colleagues see you in the boardroom, they're going to be scared of you. Yeah, you'll have giant antlers. Yes, exactly. You're going to look like a big, scary deer. But I do think that um, it's fascinating to see cannibalism, how it's viewed through disparate groups you know like for some people cannibalism is a source of reverence it's a way to respect the dead and for other people it's a a way to show hatred towards the people who died and for yeah other people it's curative and most of us now would say it's just plain disgusting 
Yeah, but I think the thing that we've discovered over the course of this podcast is it's like so many other things, the that which we find to be unusual or strange, typically things that we don't see practiced in our own communities and in our own society is inherently abhorrent to us. But when we sit down and we try and explain why it's abhorrent to us, then it becomes a much more difficult matter. I can see reasons why it would be a terrible idea to consume other people. So, for example, going back to the foray tribe that we talked about earlier and uh, maybe becoming infected with Kuru. You know, if, if you absolutely positively have to eat somebody else, like maybe don't eat their brains or their spinal tissue because like it might give you a disease that makes you laugh until you fall down and die. But outside of that, what are our other hang-ups with cannibalism? I think it's the way that we treat our dead, right? It's it's how we continue to view them as a person and uh, complete with a personality and feelings that we can't necessarily distance that person, that body from who it used to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, you were right when you talked earlier about watching an animal be killed and then butchered and then trying to eat that is a lot harder than going to the grocery store and just picking up a steak. Especially when you do things like watch videos of cows frolicking in the grass or learn the fact that cows have best friends. I think it's part of the reason why we're seeing more people turning vegan and vegetarian is that we have this awareness now. We've gone through a period where we've been distanced from where our meat comes from and not connecting the meat that's on our plate with the animals that are outside. And now we can see in however many YouTube videos that you want to watch exactly what that process looks like. And people are disgusted by it. They they turn away from it. That's one reaction to those things. Another thing is to almost... Uh, Double down. Yeah, kind of belligerently lean in and be like, if I see a vegan, I eat barbecue in front of them. And it's like, well, that, that seems like an inherently dick move. That That seems like unnecessary. I think you can have both of those reactions. I think that you can see it as something that... You don't want to partake in personally, so you're going to choose not to, or you see it as just being completely natural. Again, hearkening back to the name of Bill Shute's book, a perfectly natural thing that all animals engage in, including humans. So, should we round off with uh, some weird facts that we've come across in our... Yes. As, as if we can get any weirder, Alicia... So these are something that we may have come across in our research that is maybe not directly, it's not directly about cannibalism, Mm -hmm. but uh, maybe an offshoot of what we learned. And we do not know each other's fun fact. Should I go first? Uh, If you'd like. All right. So my uh, fun, not fun fact is about ducks, specifically ducklings. So ducklings are known to engage in cannibalism, to the extent that the Australian Agricultural Board have guidelines for how to house ducklings in a way that won't resort to them eating one another. Tiny, fluffy, baby ducks. I used to have baby ducks as pets. Yeah, well, um... They were eaten by raccoons. Thank God, I guess, in a way, before they ate each other, because if there's anything that's going to give you more nightmares at night than your baby ducks getting eaten by a raccoon, it's your baby ducks getting eaten by your other baby ducks. So, um, 
duck enthusiasts out there, if you're going to buy any ducks, keep them far away from each other. Maybe don't make sure they don't get a taste for flesh because they, they will go down that road. All right. My fun fact is about mummia. So mummia was eaten as a, a medicine, but it was also used as a pigment for painting. Mm. And it was known as mummy brown. It's actually used in um, Eugene Delacroix's Liberty Leading the People. You know, that famous French painting uh, with the woman with her tits out and she's got the French flag. Uh, yeah, I didn't know what it was meant to be. I only remembered the, the tits part, obviously. Yeah. Um, so that... That is a famous instance of someone using Mummy Brown. There is an anecdote by the writer Rudyard Kipling, who describes a day in the 1860s spent with two pre-Raphaelite... Raphaelite? Raphaelite? I'm sorry. Uh, Before Raphael. (laughs) uh, Painters, Edward Edward Byrne Jones, Kipling's uncle, and Lawrence Alma Tadema. After Alma Tadema informed his colleague that Mummy Brown was indeed made from mummies, a horrified Burne Jones retrieved his tube of mummy from his studio and buried it in the yard. He descended in broad daylight with a tube of Mummy Brown in his hand, quoted, says Kipling, saying that he had discovered it was made of dead pharaohs and we must bury it accordingly. I mean, in fairness... Uh, I think this was during a period of time when a lot of people were still unearthing mummies and, like, getting cursed and stuff. I'm thinking of, like, uh, well, I guess this would have been before Howard Carter. But, yeah, if you know you've got a tube full of spooky shit, maybe you're going to be like, this spooky shit needs to go back in the ground. Well, I mean, this was also the Victorian era, which kind of birthed our modern day idea of mourning and funeral practices. I think the thing that I find most surprising there is that they they needed like a specific shade of brown, like one of the most prevalent colors in nature. Like if they were getting some kind of iridescent sapphire blue from these mummies or or some incredibly deep reds, like that I could kind of get. Something that was really hard to get your hands on, but like mummy brown, it's like you don't you don't have like dirt in your back garden. <laughs> you Okay. Alright. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your fact. I appreciate that. So guys, uh, we we just need to stop talking because we have been talking about cannibalism for, it feels like a year, six yeah, months. Yeah, and I need to get it out of my head. So again, the one of the main sources was Bill Shute's book, Cannibalism and Natural History. We have tons of other sources, which if you're interested, we'll put in uh, the episode description. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for listening, guys. Please tune in next time where we'll be covering D is for something. Hopefully not D is for something eating something else. I can't do it anymore. Yeah. All right, folks. Take care for now. Bye. Ciao. Enter the Rabbit Hole is written and presented by William Grant and Alicia Palmer. The music was created by Glenn Marshall. More information and sources can be found in the episode description. You can email us at etrhthepod at gmail or follow us on Instagram at etrhthepod. Thanks for listening.